we are talking about really fireproofing our relationships. That's what we're talking about. Fireproofing our relationships. We did two messages, and those messages basically uh, was to uh, lay a foundation, and we will keep going. We have six messages in the series. Uh, last time we talked about last two messages, we, we gave you two points, and then we gave you three uh, principles. The two points, uh, one was, first of all, we must know who we are in Christ. You must know who you are in Christ. If we don't know who we are in Christ, the enemy can deceive you. And, and um, you know, when someone doesn't have a, a good image of themselves, uh, they tend to get pushed over, run over, and used and abused. Well, we need to know who we are in the spiritual realm because we don't want to get run over, abused, and used by Satan and his demonic influences because we know who we are. Jesus knew who he was. He knew. Jesus didn't come in this world without uh, knowledge of who he was. He knew that he was the Son of God. He knew what his purpose was. He knew where he was going, and he knew the cost it was, it was going to cost. We need to know who we are. We need to know that, that we are sons and daughters of Almighty God, that uh, uh, we're not going to be pushed around by Satan. We don't have to give in to the, to the world system. Uh, we don't have to give in to our enemies, which is the world system, our flesh, and the devil, we don't have to give in to that. We have dominion over sin now. Sin has no power over us because we have been uh, delivered from the power of sin. It doesn't mean that you are not capable of sinning. It just means that you don't have to sin. It means I don't have to sin. We don't have to do that because it doesn't control us anymore. Before we were controlled, now we're not controlled. So we must know who we are and who our enemies are. We also need to resist our enemies also. We went over three principles, and one of the principles uh, that we went over was we have no rights outside of Christ. We have no rights outside of Christ. Because in, in relationships, a lot of times we want to, we want to uh, uh, let people know and we want to defend our rights. And we have rights that God has given us, and it's to fight against our enemies, but we are not to fight against ourselves. We're not to compare ourselves with ourselves. So we are in this thing and saying, God, I'm your servant. I'm your doulos. I'm your slave. I'm your bond servant. Therefore, whatever you say, I say. Whatever you do, I do. Wherever you say go, I go. Wherever you say don't go, I don't go. In other words, we, don't, we are not our own. We are bought with a price. We went over that. We went over that we are even to love others even as he has loved us. And that's a, that's a, a love that, that you cannot uh, reproduce, you can't produce, you can't uh, fake it. Because sooner or later, everybody's going to know you're really not loving. And that love will overcome selfishness. That love will, will help us in relationships because we're going to love others as he has loved us. We're, we're not even thinking about loving others as, as really ourselves because some of us treat ourselves pretty bad. Some of us treat our, our, because when I say ourselves, because when you're married, you're one. And so you treat yourselves pretty bad. And God says, love others as I have loved you. And that puts a different thing on love. Now I, can, I have to love you unconditionally. Now I have to love you uh, even if you don't love me. I have to love you even if you do mean things to me. I have to love you even if you um, try to take advantage of me. I still have to love you. 
love is unconditional. And the third thing we went over last, which was last week, is seek peace and pursue it. Seek peace and pursue it. Pursue it. Now today, we want to go a little bit deeper. We want to talk about the blueprint for marriage. The blueprint for marriage. That's what we want to talk about today. And we want to start this off with a, uh, a video clip that um, I will put together. And it's, it's not, we, we didn't put it together, it's just a, a clip uh, from a, a movie that you all probably have seen, a DVD that you all have seen. I wanted not to use the, I didn't want to use the, the same uh, scenario all the time of the one that we are going to see, the fireproof uh, movie, which we're going to invite people, which we're going to be uh, seeing you have tickets and you're going to uh, let people know that, hey, this is a movie that you need to see, you're going to bring them. And we'll have it at Believer's Fellowship and we'll have it on the Good Friday, that night, and we're going to have popcorn and all those type of things. It's going to be a good time. And you're to invite your friends, your neighbors, uh, your relatives, and it's a good time to invite those who are unchurched and unsaved because this movie will, it touches somebody. Invite those who are saved and need uh, to move more and more to be like, like, like Christ. So let's look at the video clip and then we'll come right back. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here together in the presence of family, friends, and loved ones for the purpose of uniting in matrimony. All I could think of was the part I had to play. Then suddenly I went blank. I had one line and I couldn't remember it. When the Reverend said, who presents this woman, was I supposed to say, that's me? Or was it, I do? I couldn't think. Suddenly, it was upon me. Who presents this woman in holy matrimony? I do. Annie and Brian, you have come here today to join your hands. Who presents this woman? This woman. This vow of marriage is most solemn. But she's not a woman. She's just a kid. And she's leaving us. With a deep realization of its obligations. And responsibilities. I realized at that moment that I was never going to come home again and see Annie at the top of the stairs. Never going to see her again at our breakfast table in her nightgown and socks. I suddenly realized what was happening. Annie was all grown up and leaving us. And something inside began to hurt. I, Brian McKenzie, I, Brian McKenzie, take thee, Annie Banks, take thee, Annie Banks, to be my wedded wife, to be my wedded wife, to love and to comfort from this day forward, to love and to comfort from this day forward, 
I, Annie Banks. I, Annie Banks. Take thee, Brian McKenzie. Take thee, Brian McKenzie. To be my lawful wedded husband. To be my lawful wedded husband. To love and to comfort from this day forward. To love and to comfort from this day forward. The ring, please. With this ring, as a token of my love and affection, I thee wed. With this ring, as a token of my love and affection, I thee wed. With this ring, as a token of my love and affection, I thee wed. With this ring, as a token of my love and affection, By virtue of the authority vested in me, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Give me a kiss the bride. She did it. And now, as my son said, it's time to party. How many of you have gone through this uh, ceremony? Raise your hand. Okay, good. Today and next week, I'll be talking about marriage and its blueprint. And I want to assure you that we're going to talk from God's Word. And I know, as well as you know, that we have people in this congregation and throughout Christendom who have not followed God's blueprint for marriage. The messages are not geared to condemn you, to make you feel bad, any such thing. The messages are geared to teach you the truth because the truth will set you free. And you can teach the truth to others. And it's for the singles who um, have not yet gone through this. And it's an admonition and an encouragement to do it God's way. Because we've all experienced doing it our way. And it does not work. So let's start at the beginning. Let's start in Genesis. If you'll turn to Genesis chapter 2. Marriage, I believe, is the highest, the greatest, the most sacred relationship on earth between human, human beings. Webster defines blueprint as a thorough, 
thoroughly plotted and coordinated program of action. It's really to assemble all the information to make ready for use. So in Genesis, it's always good to start in what God calls the origin or the beginning, which is Genesis, because from there, everything was supposed to be perfect and it's supposed to stay that way. Let's start in verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Now God always wants to give us a, give us an opportunity to be obedient. So in order, in, in order to be obedient, there must be something that we can choose that will be opposite what God says. So whenever God gives any commands, there's always an opportunity for us to choose not to do something. Is that way with angels? Because if they could not choose, then Lucifer would not have sinned. And he would not fall and become, and he's of course now Satan the deceiver. I ever serve. Everyone has an opportunity to choose. And so that's why that's there. So let's look at verse 18 here. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now, now this helper is supposed to be just like him. This helper is supposed to be opposite him. They're supposed to fit well together. And they are supposed to complete one another. They are supposed to correspond to one another. And together, they will be one. Let's go to verse 22. The Lord God fashioned to a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to him, or to the man. And man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she, has, she was taken out of man. And then the scripture goes on to say, through the revelation given to Moses, that for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One flesh. That's God's plan. That's what he put forth. And in chapter 3, we see some things started happening to try to get God's people, the man and the woman, to choose to disobey, to choose to rebel. And the only way he's going to do that is deceive them. So it starts off with now, in chapter 3, verse 1, the serpent was more crafted than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the 
from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, of course, he's now tempting the woman with pride. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was desirous to make one wise. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Satan does not change. He just wraps the present with different wrappings. But it's the same contents. She took from the fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her. And he ate. And their eyes were both open. Now when God, of course, came to to talk to talk to them. He called to the man in verse nine and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave to me, she gave me the, the, uh, from the tree, and I ate. Then God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On a day, on, the, on your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat. All the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. And you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said. I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband. And he shall rule over you. And then to Adam he said. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed shall the ground be because of you, and toil shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face shall you eat the bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken." For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And let me ask you, is that true? Is the ground cursed? Is the woman going through childbirth with greatly multiplied pain? I don't know, but I'm asking the women. <laughs> Is her desire for her husband? Is the husband to rule over her? Is that what's going on? You know the word is true. 
You know it's true. They deviated from God's plan of obedience, and therefore there were consequences. And we are suffering the consequences now. Now, I'm asking you a question because we have to get to the depth of the scripture here. And it says here that there were consequences to the woman, to the man, to the serpent, to the earth. Now, I wonder how was it before that? Because it doesn't say, it just says that what the consequences were. So in order to, to do that, I, I, I've been studying, i studied some more to find out, God, your plan must not be what the curse was. Your plan must be different from the curse. How were they supposed to react and, and function together? How was their relationship supposed to have been? And so when you look at, and let's concentrate on the woman and the, and the man, it says, the woman's he said, you will greatly multiply, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. And in pain shall you bring forth children. Now once we are born again, and we are now in Christ, I wonder can we stand on now a different covenant, a covenant in Christ, and say, God, I know that because of the fall, you're supposed to multiply my pain in childbirth. But God, I'm no longer that person. I'm no longer born of Adam. Now I'm born of the Spirit. Now I'm one spirit with you, God. God, put back the situation just like it was supposed to be so that I don't have to go through this greatly multiplied pain because why should I be under the curse? Because you said in Galatians, I think it's like 3.13, that uh, Christ has redeemed us from the curse being made a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Can you stand on that, woman? See, if you don't know who you are in Christ, you won't stand on it because you'll assume that this is how it is. And that's what Satan wants you to do. He wants you to, to really not know who you are in Christ. And he, does, he doesn't want you to know the word he wants you to believe that, oh, you can't reverse anything that God has already set forth. He set forth this, and so therefore, you're going to have greatly multiplied pain. You cannot return back to the pre-fall, before you, he fell. I'm in charge now. Satan is not in charge of a born-again Christian. He's not in charge. And I've said to the, to the women who are still of child-bearing age, I would say, the blueprint to me tells me that you can stand on some word here. It also says that your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Well, that to me is part of the curse. I mean, why say it just like it is and just like it was it's no curse at all. It's no consequences for disobedience. Do you hear what I'm saying? No consequences at all. So it must be not like it's supposed to be. So, so God, God, how is it then? 
So you, I had to look up this word desire. Yet your desire, what does that mean, your desire? It says it's a feel with longing and are craving for. Where else does he use God? Turn over to uh, Genesis, I think it's uh, 4 7. This is another case of that word being used and also the word rule being used. Same uh, Strong's number, no difference in the number. It's just a difference of the who is said to. In Genesis 3.16, and 3.16 is always important. In 3.16 it tells us, that is talking about your husband. It's talking about your desire. And over here, let's read it here. If you do well, now it's talking about, it's talking about Cain now. Cain is having a situation here. Uh, and the Lord is talking to Cain because Cain was so angry because his gift was not, his offer was not accepted. And his countenance failed. So in verse 7 it says, If you do well, God is telling him, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire, that's the same word, that same desire, it could be used different, but it's the same word, same Hebrew word, is for you. Wow. And it said, but you must master it. That means you must rule it. You must have dominion of it. You cannot let it rule you. That's the same word, rule. In the, in the New American Standard, says master it. The same word, though. Conquer. You can use conquer. You can use rule. You can use master. It doesn't matter. The same word. Now, so I, when I was putting it together, I said, now, surely, surely sin doesn't have a lovey-dovey desire for Cain. Sin actually wants to, wants to, its desire is to annihilate Cain. Its desire is actually to, I'm going, I'm going to have him. He is mine. It's crouching at the door like an animal, like a lion or something. It's going to, it's going to devour him. But he says, you rule it, meaning that don't allow it to rear his ugly head. Now let's go back over. So what does it mean here? Now it could mean two things. As I said, it could mean, because sometimes the same Hebrew, and if it were in the New Testament Greek word, even though it's the same word, it can be used differently. Depending on the context of the sentence. And in the context of what it's in, in other words, the verse. And what it's talking about. The surrounding context. And so here, we see that the, the wife now, it says here, Yet your desire shall be for your husband. Now, could he, God, meaning, increased woman's desire for her husband? And maybe it wasn't that as desirous at the time. Or could she have, he had increased her desire to be who he is, or his position, or his responsibility? And it says here, 
he shall rule over you. And the thing that King James might say, but he shall rule over you. Now, is that ruling like it is in the other verse? Is that ruling that you got to master it? Or is that ruling that you're going to dominate it, have dominion over it? See, because God in the beginning, he didn't tell man to have dominion over, over other human beings. He told man to have dominion over the animals, the fish, and the birds. He, he didn't tell them to have dominion over the human beings. But see, we, in our fallen state, try to have dominion over people. That's why I have so much prejudice in the world. Uh, I don't care whether it's Catholics against Protestants. I don't care if it's Muslims against Christians. I don't care who, who it is. Uh, Palestinians against, you know, uh, Israelites. I don't care who it is. Blacks against whites. It, it's still, people want dominion over people instead of having dominion over what God told tell them to have dominion over. See, I say that when, 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 when I was bad... Dogs supposed to be, you know, barking and I want to act like they want to break loose and chase somebody. We're supposed to have dominion over them. See, but we want dominion over people. We, we don't want dominion over the animals. We'll run. We're supposed, to, we're supposed to be able to speak to the animal. That's what we're supposed to be able to speak to them. Do you think Jesus could speak to an animal? Yeah. He spoke to the ravens and told them, okay, I want you to feed my servant. Elijah, and I want him to eat twice, morning and evening. Bring him food, bring him meat, bring him bread. Did a raven do it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we should have dominion over I think we should have what the Bible says we should have. Yeah, I really do. We're not there yet, but I think we should. So as we look at this verse here, we have to decide, God, what are you saying here? So I say that let's let the whole scripture, I tell people all the time when I teach, you know, you can't take scripture and use it out of context, nor can you take the context of one book and take it out of context of the whole Bible. You have to take it from Genesis to Revelation. So as we go on, we will understand a little bit more about what God is saying. Let's look at um, in the New Testament Ephesians. Let's look there. Now in Ephesians. We know that the apostles know what God meant by what he said. Otherwise, it wouldn't be the Holy Bible. It would be just uh, uh, good advice, but it's not necessarily accurate. So we don't have to really go by this thing here because it's not the inerrant word of God. It's just good advice. And I say... This is the inerrant word of God, what it says it means, and what he said he's going to do, it is truth. There's no other truth outside this word. Everything else is a deception. It might be some facts, but facts is not truth. (laughs) It's a fact, I mean a fact, 
that if you jump off the top of this building, you're going to land on the ground somewhere. You're not going to just float because of gravity. That's a fact. But I say God doesn't, is not confined to facts. <laughs> Otherwise, he wouldn't have been able to be taken up in the, into the air. You know, when, it, when, he, when he left the disciples, he just went on up. Wouldn't be able to do that. Because he didn't have wings, did he? He wasn't in an airplane, was he? Okay. That's one of our, matter of fact, values. The second one, the word of God is the standard by which we judge everything. Let's look in verse 21. We'll start in 18. First, let's start 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your, in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. And be subject, that's where we want to pick it up now, be subject to one another in the fear of God. Be subject to one another in the fear of God. What does that mean? Because over in 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 Genesis we said it's a curse, and you know that I mean if the man gonna try to rule over the woman and like that. But here we start out be subject one to another. What does that mean? Now you have to start find out what some words mean. What does the word subject mean? In the Greek hypostasis, that it re- really means to be in an order, orderly fashion under. To be under in an orderly fashion. See, God, everything, everything, I want you to hear me now, everything in the spiritual realm is based on order. Do, do you hear what I'm saying? It's based on order. Everything in the spiritual realm is based on submission. Everything. Do you hear what I'm saying? Everything. God, in the spiritual realm, he has put subjection, obedience to what he's asked us to do as a top priority. And when we don't do it, we already have seen the results of that in Genesis. Because he just gave them a command. He just gave them a, a blessing. You can eat out of any, any tree, but just don't eat out of this tree. So he says that be subject to one another. So I want all of you to understand that nobody gets out of being subject, you know, under subjection. Now, if we will go to uh, Corinthians, it would tell us that, that Jesus Christ has a head. Who's the head of Christ? God the Father. Jesus Christ has to be subject to God the Father, even though they're one. They have different responsibilities. They have different responsibilities. Man, who's the head of man? Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man has to be in subjection. If you are a male here, you must subject yourself to Jesus Christ. 
If you are married and you are a husband, you must subject yourself to Jesus Christ. No one gets out of being in subjection. So, you know, when we start talking about subjection uh, uh, and submission, women say, oh, don't say that, you know, no. But that's how the kingdom works. But it doesn't, it's not just a command to, to women, to wives. It's a command to everybody. Everybody must be in submission. And it starts with Christ. He's the head of the church. And the head of the church is in submission, obviously, the church is going to have to be in submission. It's going to have to be come under, in an orderly fashion, Christ, the head. So that means that when I, uh, even though I'm the head elder, the senior pastor here, I have to delegate. Because if I don't delegate, I have to do everything myself. And once you delegate, now you have to, I have to come under, in an orderly fashion, those who are delegated to a certain position. Do you hear what I'm saying? No one gets out of being in subjection. No one. No one. It's a voluntary thing. It must be voluntary. In the, if you look at the, uh, the tense of the verb, you know, and the mood of the verb, you look at the, uh, uh, all that the, 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 it surrounds it, it's going to tell you it's a continuous thing, and it must be done voluntarily. That's what it's going to tell you. My studies are say P-I-M, or it's P, P, all those different letters, and then you go to where, where the numbers are, and they say, okay, that, this is what this means. It's a present imperative. It's a present this right here. And it'll tell you that, that this means this. It's telling us that we have to uh, be in a continuous. It's just like being spirit, filled with the Spirit. It's not a one-time thing. It's, it's a continuous thing. Be being filled. Be being filled. It's the same thing. Be being in submission to one another. Be being in submission to one another. In the fear of Christ. It's not in the fear of man. It's not because uh, she or he is so good and so intelligent. It's only for the fear of the Lord. It says wives in verse 22. Be subject to your own husband, husbands, and that, that's, that's implied being be subject because it's not in the in the Greek, but it's implied if you look at the context to your own husbands. It said to your own husbands. It doesn't say to somebody else's husband. It said to your own husbands, as to the Lord. We talk about the blueprint for marriage, as to the Lord. So when I counsel people and women tell me, say, well, you know. I'll, I'll, I'll be in submission to him if he would, if he would love me just like Christ of the church. Let me see, did it, did it say that? Wise, be subject to your own husband as to the Lord. Do you see anything else in that verse? Did it say, if he is, if he does, does it say any of that? Nothing like that. God is talking to wives. And he says that you do this as to the Lord, not as to the man. It doesn't have anything to do with the man. Nothing to do with the man. Nothing. Okay? Now I'm giving some of you, probably, young people, revelation. <laughs> because, see, some of you think that it depends on, I will submit to him 
if he, if he would act right. Man, do you act right? Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife. Now see, if we, if we go back to, to, to Genesis now, obviously, and I've seen people use that to say, well, hey, that's under the curse, so therefore, there's no such thing as I'm supposed to be in submission to this man. And we're supposed to be a togetherness thing. He's supposed to be in subjection to me. I'm supposed to be in subjection to him on some things. We're just fit to fit the relationship. There's no such thing in the kingdom of God. A fit to fit the relationship. None. It's 100% obedience to the Lord. That's all it is. And doesn't have anything to do with that other, other person in the relationship. As Christ also is head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. So, the, so in verse 23, it's telling the husband he's supposed to be the head of the wife. And so now it's giving, why should, why should wives be in submission to your husbands? Why should you? Verse 23 tells you. It, it, it did not say, because he is so handsome. You know? He is so kind and so good. It says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. Should the church be in submission to Christ? How about we submit to him if he does what we think he ought to do? See, most women can say, will say that, well, he, he's perfect, he's so nice, he's so gentle, you know, uh, he's so loving, you know. He is. But I guarantee you that he also would test us. He also would chasten us. <laughs> he also tells us to do things that we really don't want to do. But we know he loves us. And you say, well, if I knew my husband loved me, well, you better figure that out before you get married, before you walk down the aisle. You <laughs> see, figure it out. Learn everything you can learn. And also get, get that other person involved in with other people. Because sometimes your eyes are blinded because you can't see the forest because you're too close to the trees. But if you get somebody else opinion about this thing, your parents, that's important, that's the first thing, you know, those who you are spiritually under, you know, your friends, if they are godly, sometimes they see things that you don't see. But once you choose, whoa, we're going to have to be obedient to the word. Verse 24, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their own husbands in everything. Tell somebody next to you, everything. I didn't hear too many people. <laughs> Must have been the men saying that in everything, boy. 
<laughs> let, let, let me tell you what that means now. So you understand that. Because there's a, a teaching that, that goes around that tells you everything in Greek means, but really doesn't. From Genesis to Revelation, it doesn't mean everything. Okay? It can't mean everything. It can't mean everything because God requires a person who's his bondservant to be obedient to him. He is the king of kings. He is the chief shepherd. He's the bishop of our soul. Not no man. Do you understand? He tells us that Yes, be submitted to that husband in everything as unto the Lord, as if it pertains to what I've already told you. Otherwise, women, you have a way out and say, well, uh, my husband told me I didn't have to read the Bible. So therefore, I don't read the Bible because he told me I don't have to read the Bible. He told me I don't have to be obedient to you, Lord. So therefore, I have to obey my wife. I'm not going to obey you. Does that make sense? I mean, it doesn't doesn't even make sense to unsaved people. How in the world is it going to make sense in the Bible? That's not true. You, the line, I tell people all the time, the line is drawn when a husband tells a wife to disobey God. Don't cross that line. That line is drawn. You say, sweetheart, you know, I'm submitted to you. And submission is an attitude, sweetheart. It's a voluntary thing, and it's supposed to be done continuously. Uh, but my Lord is Jesus Christ. So therefore, he told me that I'm not to sin. So therefore, you're telling me to step across the line and sin against my Lord and Savior who saved my soul. And therefore, I'm his bondservant, not yours. So therefore, uh, I humbly submit to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you have a problem, sweetheart, go to the Lord and tell him how I'm disobedient to you. There's a teaching that says obey in everything. Everything. If he tells you, if he tells you to uh, wife swap, wife swap. Yeah. That's that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. And said, well, Christ would deliver you. Christ expects you to be obedient to him. You jump out in front of a truck you want to, Christ will deliver me. Okay, do it. Okay. Husbands, love your wives just as, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Every, every, every other school. Now, women, I have talked to you about verse 22. 23, 24. The men I'm going to be talking to, verse 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33. <laughs> there, there is more weight upon the man than there is upon the woman. Do you hear what I'm saying? The more responsibility. We love Christ because, come on. He first loved us. That's what the scripture says. So if we'll put it in the context of husband love your wife just as Christ also loved the church, 
then and gave himself for up for the church, then men we're supposed to as as men love our wives even if they don't love us. Do you hear what I'm saying? Even if they treat us unfairly, even if they don't respect us, even if they don't, you know, uh, defer to us, even if they don't submit to us, it really doesn't matter. It's not about the wife. It's about you. He didn't give the command, that command to the women. He gave it to the man. He didn't say, husband, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for if she submits to you. It didn't say that, did it? Women, you are in a good place. You're in a good place in a marriage, in a wholesome marriage, in a godly marriage. That's why you shouldn't marry because uh, they look so good, you know. Women, you marry a man with a six-pack if you want to. <laughs> and say, so, well, he has a six-pack, you know. And I'm talking about, you know, your, your stomach muscles. <laughs> you know, oh, he's so nice. So, oh, my goodness gracious, you know. Wow. Do it if you want to. Guarantee. Guarantee. That looks won't make much difference after he start treating you mean. You wait till that happens. I'm telling you. Don't marry because, because of that. Don't marry anybody, woman, don't marry anybody who's not saved. You are asking for trouble. Because there's no way an ungodly person can love a wife as Christ loved the church and he's not even in Christ. You're gonna, you, you, you're signing up for a lifetime of misery. And I, I have a lot of women can say, Amen, brothers, preach it! Because they've already experienced it. Now look, it's very important now, very important that we understand that we know sometimes it happens. Because sometimes women, they feel like, if I don't marry this one, I might not get this chance anymore. I'm getting older. And they had arranged marriages in the, in the Bible anyway, so I can love, learn, learn to love him. I can, I can, I'll, I'll get him saved in the process. Don't count on it. Don't count on it. Don't count on it. It's the worst place in the world to be with a man that's not like Christ. I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. Because I was one of them. I was just as carnal as a goose when I got married. I really was. Oh, I joined church when I was little. Oh, I got baptized when I was little. That's all I did. I said some words because mother cousins and stuff went up scripture up to and it was like like vacation Bible school type of thing, you know. Um, and not to say that some young ones don't get saved when they're young. I'm just telling you, there were no fruit. There was no fruit in my life 
for 20, no, 30-some years. 30-some years, no fruit whatsoever of being saved. I was not saved. I was a heathen. And Minerva paid the price for it because there's no way I could treat her like Christ. Women want to be treated like Christ. They really do. Treats the church. They want a husband like that. Husbands are stronger. They have heavy voice, a heavier voice. And they can really make life miserable for women. Even when a, a person is nice and meek and mild as a husband, and if the woman ever gets saved and realizes that she has a milk toast man, I call a milk toast man, like toast is supposed to be kind of stern, kind of, you know, crispy, but you put it in milk, <laughs> it becomes soggy and nothing, you know? You got to marry somebody's in Christ that's going to step up to the plate and going to lead you because once Satan starts beating on you, women, and Satan will come after the wife. He came after them in Genesis. He'll come after the wife in today's time now. He comes after women because he knows he's coming out of order. He does not come in order. He doesn't like coming in order because he's a disorderly person, you know, spirit. So he's going to come at the kids. He's going to come at the, at the woman. And, and so, therefore, men, we have to be a spiritual attuned to protect our women, to protect our children, and it's up to us as men. And we're going to finish next week. We'll keep going. And you can invite people, you know, because I'm telling, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. I also would invite you to email me uh, at Cornerstone. Uh, Com. It's on the bulletin at comcast.net. And ask me questions that you'd like for me to cover because I probably won't cover questions that you may have. What if this happens? What if this was? What happens if I, I was unsaved and I married somebody? What does the scripture tell me to do? What, what should I do about that? Ask me anything you want to ask. Okay? And I'll try to cover it during the course of the time we're, we're on this. Because this is, again, this is a serious, serious thing because of what God has said, you see? Now, you say, well, I want a, a, a nice, sounding, pleasant, uh, laughing message, you know? Well, it's good. We can, we can laugh at, at Satan once we get it right, you know? But we can laugh and joke all we want to and get the thing wrong, and we're going to be laughing at ourselves because, and for nothing because Satan's going to be steadily tearing up our marriages, our children, and relationships, and, and we're going to be laughing and thinking we're okay. We're not okay. You know? We're only okay if we're in the, in the Word of God walking like we're supposed to walk. And by the, by the grace of God, I'm going to give you what God tells me to give you on, on this subject because people need to hear it. You need to be able to Tell people you need to be able to answer their questions, uh, even though it might not have worked properly for them at one time. There are people who get married. Do you know that second marriages, more second marriages fail than first marriages? Do you know that? Honestly. In, in, in statistically. So you say, well, you know, 
I'll get it right the next time. Well, do you really want to do that? You know? Let's look at and see what the scripture says, because we're going to go over those things. You know, suppose, suppose this man, he does this, 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 this. Do I have to, do I have to stay in this man? Do I have to? Ask me any question you want to. I'll cover some naturally, but I might not cover all yours. And get, get the dad book and, and, and read it. I was talking to one person, and, and I was telling him, you can do this thing in the relationships you have. Surely you have, surely you have parents. Surely you have sisters and brothers. Surely you have coworkers. Surely you have somebody, a friend, somebody you can, you can use this for. Everything might not, might not apply, but most things do apply. You can, you can adjust it to to do it. What, is, what is this book is geared to do is work on you. I'm doing this book because it's working on me. I'm not doing this book so that if I do this right here, Minerva's going to love me more. This doesn't have anything to do with her. It has something to do with me. It has something to do with God and my relationship. You see? And if I, if I get better with my relationship with him, our relationship is going to get better. You see? Because I believe that that's the way it happens. We can get this one right, and you think this one's going to be right. It'll never be right. Never be right. Like it should be if this one's not right. Because God is not going to allow anybody to, to be an idol over him. Whether it's our kids or whether it's our mate. He's not going to allow it. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for the word, Lord. Lord, it's a great topic, it's, it, you know, and we're going to want to cover it from, from all different angles. We want to go over everything about marriage, Lord, to help, help us fireproof our marriages. We cannot fireproof our marriages. We don't even know how to, how to respond in different situations because we don't know the word of God. So, God, help me to deliver the word of God just like you have it. That which I don't know, I won't try to act like I know. And that which I do know, I will not just gloss over and not say it just because somebody might not be pleased if I said it. God, your word is worth worth proclaiming. That's where life is. That's where salvation is. Through the gospel, the good news. This is good news we're telling. Good news. Good news. Because there's a world out there that need to hear the good news. And again, if you have maybe not had a successful first marriage, I'm not condemning you. I'm not even talking to you, really, honestly. I'm talking about the blueprint. Blueprint for the marriage so that you will know to share with others, so that our young people know how to make this thing work. When they start building our church, they're going to go buy a blueprint. They're going to go buy plans. If they just do what they want to do, what they feel like doing, it's going to be a mess. We want the plans that you have for our marriages, Lord. Not, not our own thoughts, not our own plans. And we'll give you the glory for it. In the name of Jesus, let's stand. And I have the prayer team up.